Well, today we are closing out a series called Traveling Light, and in case you're just joining us for the first time, no worries, I'll catch you up to speed. What we know is that every time you take an offense from someone or something, it's like you're picking up a weight or a burden that you carry around with you. So what we simply want to do for you this January of 2021, or whenever you're watching it, we want to help you travel light by letting go of offense. And here's what we learned so far in this series. Offense is going to happen. It's not something you can avoid. Whether people mean to, intentionally, or by accident, they will offend you eventually. But you can choose how to respond. We can either react out of anger, or we can deliberately respond by what we do. Then we saw that a big part of letting go of offense is the practice of forgiveness. And in part two, we saw what that meant and what it doesn't mean to forgive. And then finally, last week, we saw that even though offense and taking offense usually looks like anger on the outside, usually on the inside, it starts with a fear and specifically a fear of losing something. So basically, where we've been so far is we've been talking about how not to live in offense. Don't let offense be a regular part of your life, but rather learn to identify it and deal with it quickly. <laughs> Things will come up, anger will arise, but the, cue, the, the important thing is to deal with it quickly. And then how we wanted to conclude the series here for part four is to pivot just a little bit to remind all of us that when it comes to traveling light, it's not just about you. It's not just about me. So the way we wanted to close the series is by talking about how we should not cause offense. We've been learning how to deal with the offense we've been given, but maybe we need to look at what it means to not cause offense for the people around us. This is where I wanted to go. But as I, as I worked through the sermon this week, talking about what it looks like to live a life where we don't cause offense for other people, I noticed I came to a dead end and was forced in a different direction. I had already committed to 1 Peter chapter 4, a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote in the first century to some Christians who were being persecuted, because in this section, he gives such clear wisdom and guidance about how to not offend the people who are around you. In fact, I'll just give you a quick glimpse into what that section has to say. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply. As the Apostle Paul would say, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, it keeps no record of wrongs. The more you love someone, the more deeply you love them, the harder it is to take offense from them. And here's why. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over, love covers over, love pushes away a multitude of sins. Or in the vocabulary we're using for this series, love covers over a multitude of offenses. Here's why. When you choose to love someone, it takes off the table your choice to take offense from them. When you choose to love someone, it takes away, it minimizes your ability to take offense from them. And as you read through 1 Peter 4, it lists all sorts of ways that you can intentionally live a life that does not cause offense as much as it is up to you. And I had this big plan of working it all out, and here was kind of my big bottom line that I would have shared in, in the message I was planning, that the more respect you show, the less offense you give. And I believe this is true, but it's not always true. As I thought through this truth, I ran it through the filters of some other things that pop up in the Bible, and what I quickly ran into was a problem. 
a dead end of sorts. I saw an example of a person in the Bible who always respected people perfectly, and yet people were offended. People took offense at Jesus. And not just the obvious at the end of his life where people crucified him because they hated him so much, but throughout his ministry, you see examples where the writers of the Bible took a moment to say that people were offended by him, by what he was saying. There was one, one occasion where Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the first century, and he was speaking against their customs, which they had built up around God's word. And as Jesus was destroying their customs, the disciples whispered in the, his ear, you know you're offending the Pharisees, right? And then Jesus just keeps on going. There was another example where Jesus, as he was traveling around doing miracles and preaching amazing things, he makes a stop back at his hometown of Nazareth. He stands up in the synagogue, as was his custom, and he starts to preach and teach. And then the people stand back and they say, who is this? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the son of a carpenter? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? And it specifically says in Matthew 10, they were offended by him. People were offended by Jesus, not because he didn't love them and not because he was disrespectful. But what I came to as a conclusion today is that this was as far as I could take my intended line of thought. Yes, it's true, the more you love people, the less offense they will take. The more respect you give to them, the less offense they will take. But sometimes God wants his messengers to instigate offense from people around them. So the farthest I could take my original line of thought is number one on the sheets for today. Live in such a way that you do not cause unnecessary offense. Unnecessary being the offense is over my personal preference or the offense is over something that I totally misunderstood and I didn't need to take offense to begin with. There's a lot of things that come up in daily life that are unnecessary offenses. And we should play our part to live in such a way that we don't cause those on someone else. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to love others as God has loved you. But what I want to do for the rest of the story here is I want to dive into the story of, or what I want to do for the rest of the message today is dive into the story of a man named Naaman who understood very well what happens when God sends people into your life not to avoid offense, but actually to cause it. We only see Naaman come up in one chapter of the Bible. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. And Naaman, as we look through it, we just get a brief biographical background of who he was. And I want to share that with you. This is from 1 Kings, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here's a quick summary of what you need to know. Naaman lived in about 850 BC. He was an army commander for the king of Aram, also known as Syria. And so if you're familiar kind of with your map of, of Israel, you've got Israel towards the Mediterranean Sea. And then on the other side of the Jordan, northeast, is Syria. And what we know from back then is that there were several military scuffles between those two nations. They were not friends. There was no peace. What else we know about Naaman is that he was highly successful as a military commander, and as such, he was highly respected. 
just as you read through those first five verses of 1 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5, you see so many um, praises spoken about him. And just in a brief, concise way, you can tell that he was well admired and well respected by many, many people. But as highly <laughs> successful as he was, and as highly respected as he was, there came a day when everything started to change for him. He contracted leprosy. As we look at the rest of the account in 2 Kings chapter 5, we see that it wasn't like an all-out thing. When leprosy started, it's not like it turned your entire body a different color or it, it set in everywhere right away. But quite often, leprosy would start as small spots, small red spots that would eventually grow and become white and spread throughout the entire body, eventually leading to a very slow and painful death. So it seems that one day, Naaman woke up, a highly respected, highly successful man, yet he could see the metaphorical writing on the wall. He was given a death sentence. As it turns out, he heard about a hope. He heard about a prophet in Samaria, across the Jordan River, a prophet who might be able to heal him in some miraculous way. So Naaman went to his king, got permission Naaman loaded up his horses and chariots with all sorts of silver and gold, and I'm not entirely sure why it includes this detail, but Naaman also took with him 10 sets of clothing. Maybe it was for him because he was planning a long journey, or they were designed to be gifts for, for um, whoever would heal him in Samaria. But just a quick note on that. It's unfair for us to look at the amount of gold he had in today's value, because values change over time. But best estimates suggest that in 850 BC, the amount of things he brought was worth over $1.5 million in today's money. Quite a bit. He was on a parade. He was going to make a spectacle of himself. He was going to bring with him a great gift so that this great man of God in Samaria would do what he wanted him to do. And finally, what happens is we see that a letter is delivered. A letter was sent from the king of Aram to Israel's king. And as this military commander from Syria enters into Israel, he comes with gifts, he comes with a kingly letter, and he came full of money that he could give. And I just want to pause there because that's where you and I have a bit of a similar background with Naaman, not necessarily his amount of wealth, but with the way that we naturally approach the idea of God. As Naaman thought about God, as he thought about this prophet of Israel and whoever God that might be, Naaman instinctively reacted with this. He said, I need to bring everything I have to prove to him that I'm worthy of what I want him to do. Naaman saw in himself something good. He saw in his in his wealth, something that he could offer. And as anyone else would have done in those days, he brought what he thought would be a sufficient sacrifice for the God that he wanted to heal him. In other words, Naaman was greatly inflating his idea of self-respect. He greatly exaggerated who he was in the sight of God. And that's something that by nature, all of us tend to do also. We tend to inflate how much respect we deserve. Now, people might fall on different ends of the spectrum, but sometimes it happens with all of us. There might be that moment of trying to bargain with God. 
you want him to do something, and so you make a promise or you make an offer, you make a sacrifice for him. God, if you do this, I'll do that. We tend to inflate what we can possibly do to earn the favor of God himself. And it's when we are in that kind of a situation that the best thing God can do is to bring into our life a little bit of offense. We need someone to step in and say, you think you're so great. You think you're so worthy of respect. You might want to have another look. And what's interesting is the word respect in English comes from two Latin words. I'm not a Latin scholar, by the way. I totally had to look this up. But the two words are re and specere or specto. And we see that the word specere or specto in a whole bunch of different places, inspect, expect, um, spectacle. It, it shows up a lot. But the respect, it literally means to take another look at or to look back at something, to take a second look at. It's almost as if when you respect someone, you're giving them extra focus, extra attention because they're worthy of it. But as we see so often when we inflate our idea of the respect we deserve from others and or from God, we should take another look. And the best way to do that is if someone has the courage to step in and maybe even cause a little bit of offense. And as we get into 2 Kings chapter 5 and just dive into the text, you're going to see offense taken from a number of different people. I think this is a great way to end this series. It's going to give us a lot of wisdom, both for offense in general, but specifically why it is that God sometimes steps in and has to cause offense before he can do what he wants to do. So here's the letter that the king of Aram sent to the king of Israel. Delivered by Naaman himself, it said this, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, what were the intentions behind this letter? I think the intentions were good. They were honest. The king of Aram says, one of my best military commanders has a death sentence, and I would like to have that undone. Hey, king of Israel, would you help? Would you help? The intentions were fine, but look at how this letter was interpreted by the king of Israel. It goes on. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes, which was an act of frustration and anger, basically another way of saying, I'm taking offense here. And he asked, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow... Send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy. See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. Now, just notice real quick before we move on, this isn't the main point of today's message, but notice how he took offense. He asked a few questions that he didn't know the answer to, but he supplied an assumed answer for each of them. And that happens so often with us too. We interpret someone's intentions in the way that they weren't meant to be interpreted. And that can so easily lead to us taking offense. So when respect can be given, it mitigates, it lessens the amount of offense we give. But sometimes it's in a person's choice how they interpret what they see. Travel light, don't take offense, react as you, as you want to react, instead pause to respond. So the king of Israel is totally offended. He's frustrated. He's angered. And word gets out. 
So next verse, when Elisha, the man of God, the, the prophet in Israel that Naaman was looking for, when, when he heard that the king had torn his robes, he sent the king this message. Why have you torn your robes? And Elisha knew why, but he's basically saying, there's no need for you to tear your beautiful kingly robes. There's no reason to be offended. Just have the man I love how he puts this, not have the commander or have the guest from Syria, but he just says, have that human being, that person who's just like everyone else, have that man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And when the king of Israel delivered this message to Naaman, Naaman did what we'd expect him to do. He went out, got in his jeep, got his chariots, got his horses, got his caravan, whatever he did. He went out and he got his horses, went with his chariots. In other words, he, he loaded up all of his silver, all of his gold. He, he continued to parade this spectacle down the street of Israel all the way to Elisha's house, and he stopped right in front of his door. Now, I don't know exactly what kind of neighborhood Elisha lived in, but I assume it, it did not compare at all with the kingly palace of Israel or the kingly palace in Syria in Aram. I'm envisioning a neighborhood that's kind of normal. <laughs> but here is this great parade of wealth and power and dignity that should get the attention and respect of everyone. And as Elisha knocks on that door, what should he expect but the welcome that a military commander is worthy of. He, he expects to receive respect that is due him. But here's what he finds. Elisha did not want to get up from his couch. So Elisha sent a messenger to say to him. And this is so important. As Elisha thinks about this person, this military commander, there's nothing about him that from God's perspective God should be impressed about. And there's nothing about him that Elisha is impressed about. As Elisha thinks about him, he treats him as he would any other person. Elisha sends his messenger with some really odd instructions. The messenger said to him, go. Not come inside, not the doctor will be with you in five minutes, but go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. I think this is so ironic because Naaman had to go through the Jordan to get there in the first place. Perhaps he even got a little bit wet. Uh, he, what I know happened is he saw how dirty the Jordan River water was, and this was not what he was wanting or expecting to hear. So here's what Naaman did. He acted like a two-year-old. He went away angry, and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, the, the commander of the army of the king of Aram. And he would stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, not my God, his, whoever his God is. He would just call on the name of his God, maybe do some amazing things, wave his hand over the spot of my leprosy and cure me of my leprosy. I was expecting a little bit more amazing things. I was expecting a little bit more of a show. 
And when his expectations aren't met, what happens? He gets angry. This so happens to all of us. When our expectations are not met from God, are not met by God, we tend to get angry. We get upset. We we pray a good prayer to God. We ask him to take away something that should be taken away. We ask him to heal something that should be healed. But when we don't get the answer that we expected to hear, the answer can be anger. We inflate our, set, our sense of who we are and what we can offer to God. Maybe we inflate ourselves in the sense that we think we know what God should do. We inflate our sense of the respect that we think we deserve. And in those moments, the best thing God can do is to cause offense, to challenge our idea of who we are. And then Naaman goes on with his own remedy, his own cure. He says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better? There's better options out there. You're pointing me to some dirty Jordan River. What's special about that? It's better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I just wash in them the waters of of Damascus and be cleansed? And so he turned off and ran off in a rage. And he was this close to losing what God wanted to do for him and in him. And I wonder if some of you have been in that position in life too where you were so disappointed that God did something or didn't do something that it's like you just were filled with this rage, this confusion or frustration. You were wondering what God was trying to do and it resulted in anger. Sometimes what God does makes no sense. Uh, I think an old hymn referred to it as God works in mysterious ways. None of us can really understand what he's doing, but sometimes it would just be nice to have a little bit of a hint as to what he needs to do. And as Naaman turned off in a rage, that's exactly where God needed him to be. Naaman had lost it. As the Apostle Paul, several centuries after Naaman, would talk about God's plan and what God was doing, The Apostle Paul acknowledged what Naaman was feeling. Sometimes God's remedy, God's cure for what we ask is not what we expect to the point where sometimes what God tells us seems foolish. This is how Paul put it in the first century. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In Naaman's terms, the message of how to be healed was foolishness to him who was sick, to him who was facing death. And this is so like God to do. This is the pattern we see throughout the scriptures. God turning to weird sources, weird places for us to turn our attention to. And ultimately, the highlight of foolishness in the first century was the message that Paul and others like him were sharing. That the forgiveness of God that we so desperately need was taken care of on a cross. You see, all of us like Naaman, we want to bring with us all the things to God and say, God, here's why you should listen. Here's why you should heal. Here's why you should restore, whatever it is. We bring with us all of our pride, all of our self-respect, And here, God, you should do what we want to do. But the foolishness of the cross is that you do nothing. The sacrifice that makes us good with God is not what you bring to God, but rather what he brought down to you. The foolishness of the cross is that the payment needed to gain the favor of God was given by God himself. 
And that, while we, many of us, would see as a good message of peace and joy, what I want to start with is that this message of the gospel is offensive until we see ourselves rightly. Who are you to say that God is not pleased with what I do? Who are you to say that I have nothing to offer God? That is offensive when the implication is that you cannot gain God's favor and that he's not impressed by all your silver and gold and 10 sets of clothing. That is offensive. But sometimes God needs to cause offense in our hearts and in the lives of people around us so that we can see ourselves rightly for who we are. One of the common things that I've seen throughout this series is it always comes back to humility in one way or another. Whenever we take offense in the wrong way, it's because we're thinking too highly of ourselves. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's not downplaying your value as a human being. Humility is just thinking of yourself rightly to see who you really are. You are born an enemy of God, hostile to him. You are born an alien, an outsider from God's kingdom. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. There was nothing you could bring to God to change that fact. But the good news that is at first offensive is that God had to come to us with that perfect gift. So as we see the story of Naaman play out, He is exactly where he needs to be. He is frustrated because he realizes that he can do nothing to be healed. He needs to yield himself, submit himself to what this man of God named Elisha was telling him to do. But as of right now, he's stomping off in a rage until his servants come up and say, Naaman, you might want to give this another look. Naaman's servants went to him and said, a term of respect, a term of submission, they said, my father, like they're scared of him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? And they don't give examples. They're like, you you think of it. You've done great things with your life. If he asked you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more, father, than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Great things you would have done. Why not just yield yourself, get rid of your pride, and do what he asked you to do? And in this moment, something changes on the inside of his heart. Naaman ended up doing what he was asked. So he went down and dipped himself. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't just go down to the water and kind of splash himself, the happy guys. You know, he, he wasn't just doing that. He wasn't going through the motions. He dipped himself in that water seven times as the man of God had told him to, and his flesh was restored. It became clean like that of a young boy. There was nothing special about the water, by the way. Um, Just like when we do baptisms today, we don't get water for our baptisms from the Jordan River. The, The special thing about the water that day was that there was a promise behind it. And when God puts his promise behind water, In Naaman's case, it can clean leprosy away. In our case, baptism, it can clean a person's guilt away, sin away. The power was not in the water of the Jordan. It was in the promise attached to it. He became clean again. So Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. They went back to Elisha. Naaman stood before him and said, now I know. There is no God 
in all the world. This was so big in the in the 800s BC, because their belief was that each country, each nation kind of had its own God. And, you know, the people in that nation prayed to that God and sacrificed to that God, and that God would do things for them. But Naaman makes an observation, a confession of faith that was so beyond what normal people would say back then. He said, there is no God in all the world, in any nation, except the one here in Israel. So please accept a gift from me, your servant. Take a look at my horses and chariots. Look at the fine arrangements of silver and gold and 10 sets of clothing. What can I give you? And I believe that this was a well-intentioned response, that he wanted to simply express thanks to God, thanks to Elisha for what had happened. But Elisha, recognizing that Naaman was still kind of young in his faith, Elisha makes a bold decision. The prophet answered him, no. Surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not Accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, Naam, um, Elisha refused. Um, this is why we at North Cross, like we don't make a big deal about offerings and giving to the ministry. Those who are new to North Cross, we want you legitimately to be our guest. It's not through offerings that you gain our love. It's not through offerings or gifts or money that you gain God's approval. It's through the foolishness of the cross that you see what God has done for you that God makes things right for us. And that's a message Elisha wanted Naaman to know full well. It was not because of the promise of a gift that Elisha decided that he could be healed. It was a free gift. So as you think about it, not even Naaman could afford to be healed. It wasn't his wealth. It wasn't his respect that gained approval that day. It was simply a free gift from God, which to us seems like foolishness. But where we are hopeless, we need God to be reckless with his love and his grace for us. And that's what we get from the story of Naaman. Sometimes when we stand before God, we bring with us all the things we think should impress him. Certainly, God will answer this prayer. Certainly, God will do what I need him to do because of who I am. And in those moments, we need God to cause offense, to lessen who we are so that Christ might be magnified and his cross be highlighted in our lives. That's the story we get from Naaman. Now, to end this message and to end this series, I wanted to do something that I've seen a lot of movies do, and I love it when the movies do this, so I thought I would try this in our message today, too. So the most important part of this, as we conclude, isn't all the stuff that I just told you, but it's actually something that happened before all of this. So here's what they do in the movies. Several weeks earlier, before all this happened, before Naaman loaded up his silver and gold, before he woke up and found that spot of leprosy on him, before any of this happened, something else happened that allowed this entire story to unfold. And here's what happened. Several weeks earlier, a band of raiders from Aram, where Naaman was, had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel and she was forced to serve Naaman's wife. Now, this was not fair. Some foreign army comes in, they raid a town, they take this Israelite young girl, perhaps not even a teenager yet, and she's forced to be a servant in this military commander's household. How unfair. She should have been bitter, she should have resisted, she should have been angry. So, one day, she hears what happened to her master. 
she heard that he got leprosy. So it goes on. She said to her mistress, if only my master would die a slow death. If only, maybe the opposite, if only this would go faster so that he could stop inflicting damage on my country, on my people. But instead, this young girl teaches us a greater lesson than probably any of us could have done in that moment. She had decided not to take offense. Here's what she did. If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, this prophet would cure my master of leprosy. If only he could see. If only there was some way he could get there. And because of this, Naaman hears about Elisha. And because of this, Naaman packs up all of his horses and chariots and he starts this trip across the Jordan River. It was because one little girl, one young girl, was able to let go of an offense. And it didn't just benefit her. I believe that as she lived in this household, she was able to travel light, absolutely. But because she set aside her offense, it allowed her to share a message that let someone else travel light also. So that's what I want to close with today. Letting go of offense can help others travel light. And I wonder if there's someone in your life right now that you know isn't, isn't traveling light. You maybe know of someone who thinks that they are full of reasons why they should be respected. And they, in Naaman's terms, maybe it's someone who's traveling along with a lot of silver and gold and 10 sets of clothing because they think that this is going to earn God's favor. Maybe all it takes is a simple invitation. If only they could see the cross. If only they could see the good news and hear the good news. Maybe your first step is to let go of an offense that they did to you so that as you travel light, you can see the opportunities around you to invite others to travel light too. Offense will happen. You get to choose how to respond. And in today's world, there are so many opportunities where we can let go of offense to help others and to let others travel light with us. I hope you can join us next week. As much as I love this series, I'm really looking forward to next week as we get to talk about relationships and marriage, and we're going to launch a series that will help us have a good framework for healthy, intentional goals that we can set within relationships to better reflect the love that God has for us. Um, But for now, let's close out this series with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, life is complicated. There's always things going on in life that can potentially cause offense. There's different factors and different levels of relationships and people that can be complicated. But I thank you that the message you give us cuts through all of that with a very simple principle. That when we came to you, we had nothing to offer. In fact, we couldn't even come to you. We couldn't even find you our offenses of sinfulness so cut us off from you that we were foreigners, we were dead, we were hostile, we were enemies. But it was your grace that came near to us. It was your first step of letting go of offense and forgiving our offense that you were able to make us part of your family. So as we conclude this series on the whole idea of traveling light, I pray that it would 
first be a blessing for us internally, that we can feel that relief of letting go of these offenses, finding the power to forgive, and seeing what it does in us. And having experienced that, I pray that you would then allow us to share what might first be a foolish message, but a message that ultimately brings peace and joy for the people around us too. So that we don't just travel light ourselves or travel light as a church, but so that we can help our neighbors, friends, relatives travel light with us. I ask that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.